This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Alleged Yahoo hacker Karim Baratov has pleaded not guilty. You might remember we were chatting uh, last week that uh, he waived his right to an extradition hearing, wanted to get the process started because time that he spends here uh, doesn't count to anything there. So if it's going nowhere, uh, why waste any more time? Uh, He has already been in court uh, in California. Uh, joining us now to talk about all of this, Joseph Newberger is with us, criminal lawyer, Newberger Partners, LLP, and with us now. Hello, Joseph. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. So are you surprised how quick this is all moving now that uh, Baratov has waived his uh, his uh, chance at, uh, at an extradition hearing? Not at all. Uh, in cases with this type of profile, and generally anybody who then decides to waive extradition, the uh, removal from Canada down to the requesting state is done very, very fast. And the U.S. system uh, in many states um, moves much quicker uh, to get the person to trial than our system. So I'm not surprised by this at all. Why does the U.S. system move that much quicker than ours? They, they have certain time guidelines that have to be adhered to. Uh, various um, states and federal rules have different sort of guidelines when it comes to disclosure as well. In some states, even if it's a federal case, um, the right to disclosure is uh, more minimal than what we have in Canada. I'm not saying it's a better system at all by any means. Uh, in fact, I have concerns sometimes about U.S. cases because of the nature of disclosure and um, what may be pressure to get a trial on without having a proper opportunity to defend against the allegations, but they have different timelines which generally force it through uh, in a swifter pace. So what happens now to him? He ha- Well, explain what would have happened uh, with all of this and, and him being in court in California. Well, he'll, uh, he, he's made his appearance, so he'll have to uh, torture the jurisdiction as he has. He'll be arraigned. Um, Unlike us, right at the first appearance, he actually renders a plea. So when somebody first appears in court in Canada, they don't have to uh, render a plea. They can reserve that right until they've reviewed the prosecution's case. They're basically just informed of the charges. He's informed, and and then they take his plea right away. There will be a disclosure process that will go on now for uh, Mr. Baratov. He's in custody. I'm not sure if his uh, lawyers are going to try for some sort of uh, bail uh, in the United States, I doubt that he'd ever get it. Um, and once that's undertaken, there will be some discussions with the prosecution. The defense lawyers will obtain the material from the prosecution that is available and review it. And I suspect there will probably be discussions possibly regarding resolution as well. Um, so how much of a disadvantage is it for him to plead guilty or not guilty now? No, no, no disadvantage at all. It doesn't really matter. He can always change his position later on based upon what he and his counsel have reviewed and instructions he provides to his counsel. Obviously, no disadvantage. Obviously, pleading not guilty provides him with more options at this point, no? Absolutely correct. Yeah, if you were to plead guilty right away, that would not be a good thing. So what options are available to him moving forward, or what could be? Well, there's, there's a lot of charges. So I think really what he and his counsel have to do is obtain as much evidence of the prosecution's case as possible and carefully scrutinize it to determine if they have a sufficient case to prove guilt on all the counts in the indictment. Right. Um, and then I think it's important, uh, like we would here, 
for the defense counsel to engage in dialogue with the prosecution about the issues in the case. And typically in the United States, because sentencing can be so severe, um, there usually are negotiations, even if there's a not guilty plea, about what a possible plea bargain could look right. Look right. So I think, I think they will, you know, I'm sort of looking through a, uh, a crystal ball at the moment, but I think that there will be some discussion about a possible plea bargain. Uh, will uh, Baratov's lawyers know how strong this case is before they ever head to court? Well, the disclosure requirements, again, in the United States are different than ours. And there are certain pieces of evidence that they may, the prosecution may not disclose because of national security risks or with respect to other national uh, interests, especially if evidence has come from another country. So they will know let's say, the majority of the evidence against their client. Um, it won't be as timely and as fulsome as you would have in Canada, but they will have a fairly strong understanding of the case against them. Certainly sufficient to make decisions about whether to go to trial or not, and certainly sufficient to make decisions about how to conduct the defense if they are going to trial. So, uh, basically, Baratov's lawyers try to find out how strong the case is, uh, take it back to him, give him some options as far as uh, where it can go from there, uh, in and around his plea and such, and it may not go to trial. How possible is that? Well, it's hard for me to gauge, but these types of cases, um, the evidence in order to lay the charge is, there's always a trail, right? So if it's like Mm -hmm. a fraud case or a computer espionage case, there's always a trail. And whether he's receiving funds, whether uh, computer hacking had gone on, it is a technical case. There will be technical evidence disclosed, and there may be a path which uh, the the disclosure will show, which will lead to Mr. Baratov, and they will have to make decisions based on that. Um, So it, it could be quite clear evidence about his guilt in the case. I'm not saying there is, but there could be very clear evidence about it. And if there is, then there is a strong likelihood that there will be plea bargain negotiations. Um, we've often heard how difficult it is to prove Internet crime, that it's very hard to track, very hard to trace. The fact that they got the prosecution got to this point, does that mean they must have real clear evidence? Does this make it any more difficult to prove because of the type of crime? Um, these cases are challenging. You need very sophisticated investigative techniques, very specialized uh, investigation uh, agencies involved. Uh, They're not impossible to prove. Um, There are many Internet crimes uh, that are are proven and traceable, certainly where you look at child pornography cases that span many countries. Uh, We have very specialized units in in Toronto and Canada that do an excellent job on Internet crimes. So I suspect also the United States has very sophisticated ability to investigate this type of case. That doesn't mean that it could be proof beyond a reasonable doubt. It's the same threshold we have here. But I suspect that uh, in order to have made the uh, request for extradition and obtain the indictment against the United States, the prosecution probably has some fairly strong evidence against Mr. Baratov. And obviously uh, strong enough for him to waive his uh, extradition hearing. Or would that play a factor? Not really. Extradition in Canada to the United States really is a fait accompli. I, I rarely ever advise clients, unless in exceptional circumstances, to try and fight extradition to the United States, because there are rare cases where somebody is not extradited. And you will never have in Canada the full case for the prosecution. It's taken its highest 
and the standard for extradition here in Canada is a very low threshold. So there is little sense to fight extradition. It is a smart move to waive and go down to the United States and get that process going. Uh, allegedly, 80 people were hacked through the operation uh, um, connected to Baratov. Uh, 500 million uh, you, uh, Yahoo users' uh, accounts were tampered with. The fact that this was 80 out of, you know, 500 million, does that hold any weight here? Uh, yeah, I mean, again, I think what's, what's more significant is uh, the scheme itself, the sophistication of it, what it was aimed at. What, what damage was done, um, the uh, money which was earned as a result of it, uh, whether the number of targets or how many people were, were hit or affected by this is, is very significant. But you're looking at a fairly sophisticated, multi-jurisdictional uh, type of uh, crime. And that in and of itself carries a very significant seriousness. The fact that uh, there were four charged in this, three of them are Russian and will never see the light of day in a courtroom here, um, uh, is that significant to this case? Do they need them in any way to prove this? I, I really don't know. Um, he is charged with conspiracy, even though there are uh, co-conspirators who will not appear in court. So this is sort of hard to explain. But a prosecution can go ahead on a conspiracy, even though other people who is conspired with may be A, unidentified, or B, not present in the court. So it doesn't hinder the prosecution. I suspect the prosecution in the United States has sufficient evidence without these persons to be brought before the court. I think it's a shame for the U.S. jurisdiction that they're not able to get these individuals before their court uh, to prosecute them, but it probably will not have a uh, significant impact on the prosecution for Mr. Baratov. However, maybe Mr. Baratov's defense will be quite creative, and there may be other facets to his defense we don't know right now. Maybe these other individuals had them under duress, if that's something. I'm just really yeah. guessing at the moment, but there could be other factors that Mr. Baratov could maybe draw upon, and uh, these people will not be able to answer to because they're not, they're not before the court in the United States. How damaging is this to Russia in any way? Do they care? You know, uh, <laughs> you know a, a mule is gone, they don't care, or does this draw more attention to them? Well, I, I, I don't think they care. I mean, you know, when you watch what's been playing out in the United States with yeah. this investigation with uh, President Trump and the interference, it just seems that this is their modus operandi. So if one, uh, you know, piece of their overall mechanism is missing or gone, I don't think they really care about it. I think their goal is to create influence and havoc as much as possible in order to disrupt businesses and, and, and governmental uh, work in the United States. So I suspect uh, that they're not really that concerned about this. Um, we've heard or read that, you know, th this could come with a penalty as high as, as 20 years. If, in fact, Baratov is convicted, uh, what sort of institution will he go to? Will it be filled with murderers and rapists? Will it be a different type of sentence? What will that be like? Well, I'm, I'm not able to help with respect to the sentence because um, I'd have to take a look at the sentencing guidelines with all the offenses depending upon what he'd be pleading to. But let's assume for a moment it would be a 20-year sentence would be the maximum. Because of the nature of the crime and the risk to national security, I suspect that he would be um, assessed to be in either a maximum secure facility or a medium secure facility. Some people who are convicted of fraud-related offenses 
or even Internet uh, crime offenses, if they don't draw into question significant risk to society at large in the United States, could easily be classified and wind up at a low to minimum secure facility. Uh, and there's a, a wide range in the United States, uh, far broader than what we have here in Canada. Um, so he could, he could conceivably wind up in a facility that would have other people who are charged with financial crimes and more sort of Internet crimes, but because... More white-collar crimes. Yeah, yeah, more like white-collar crimes. Um, but because, I, you know, I have some, you know, the feeling I get is the national security issue to this, uh, he could easily be made uh, sort of uh, uh, an example of by having him labeled as a high-risk uh, offender. But uh, we're at the early stages right now because the true facts, we don't know at the moment until the prosecution unravels. Uh, obviously not bail in Canada, no, pro- less of a chance there, I'm guessing? Yes, I agree with you. I, I think he has no roots in the United States, high risk to flee. Uh, his poor parents probably will put up anything they can for him, but I, I'd be surprised if he would get a release in the United States. But there's always a chance. How big an issue do you think this is in the U.S.? Will this play out uh, in the media down there, do you think? Oh, I'm sure there's other things still take precedence. That's true. It's not like there isn't lots going on. Yeah, they, they they got a lot of things going on. Every day there's some sort of you know silliness coming out of the White House, and there's a lot of uh, international issues ongoing. I'm sure it'll play. It'll get some press. It's certainly intriguing because of the Russian connection, you know, the lavish lifestyle allegedly that he, he uh, had. So it's going to get some play for sure. But, you know, when you put it on the grand scheme of everything we've been watching come out of the United States, and other more significant issues like NAFTA and Korea and other things, it's not going to get national attention across the United States. I'd, I'd be surprised if it would even show up on CNN. Do you think this will go to court? Do you think it'll see a courtroom? Um, you know, I, I, I think there would be a lot of pressure on Mr. Baratov to try and work out a resolution. There might be a fair amount of information he has that could assist the United States authorities. I mean, if he were to Again, I'm guessing right now, because I really don't know much about the case against him, and we really don't. But if there is this connection to Russian hackers, we can only imagine how interested uh, investigative authorities in the United States would want information from him and how helpful he could possibly be. And so by cooperating with the authorities, that could be extremely valuable to Mr. Baratov, ultimately for what he pleads to and what sentence he may receive. And maybe he holds a wealth of information for the U.S. Um, they may know it already, um, but maybe he has certain information that could be uh, very interesting and draw some connections that, uh, that they wanted some concrete evidence on. Joseph Newberger has been with us, criminal lawyer, Newberger and Partners, LLP. Joseph, thank you for the time. Much appreciated, as always. Always a pleasure. Have a great day. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. A teacher's union's pushing to strip Sir John A. Macdonald's name from Ontario schools. This, of course, claiming or stating that he is uh, was the architect of uh, the residential school system and other uh, uh, things against uh, Indigenous people. Uh, lots of comment on this on Facebook. Uh, we'll get to those comments coming up just a little later on. 
Let's bring in Patrice Dutel, professor in the Department of uh, Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson, co-edited McDonald at 200, New Reflections and Legacies, and wrote uh, Prime Ministerial Power in Canada, Its Origins under McDonald, Laurier, and Borden. And Patrice is with us now. Patrice, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. My pleasure. So uh, should John A. McDonald's name be removed from Ontario schools? Absolutely not. In fact, we should be adding his name to any other new school. So my, my position is pretty clear. So uh, do, you, do you see the other side of this at all? What about him being the architect of the residential school system? Uh, no, I don't agree with, with the resolution that's been put forward by the English Teachers Federation of Ontario. Their resolution is a lot more categorical. They they accuse John A. Macdonald of genocide, uh, and that I think is is uh, is mystifying uh, that John A. Macdonald was one of the architects of the residential school systems is indisputable. There is no doubt that John A. Macdonald, like all his contemporaries, and I include the Aboriginal leaders, demanded that there be education for the Aboriginal people of Canada, and so the idea here was to modernize to bring them up to the 19th century, to give them the tools necessary to get jobs, to get into the mainstream of Canadian society. John A. Macdonald did wish for the assimilation of Indigenous Canadians. There is no denying that. He said it out loud. But then so did everybody else. So is he one of the architects of residential schools? Yes, absolutely. Were his intentions to assimilate Aboriginal Canadians, I think it's pretty undeniable. But to accuse him of genocide, that's where I draw the line. Does this compare to this, the discussions that are going on in the United States right now? We're obviously uh, seeing the removal of Confederate statues, uh, monuments, this sort of thing. Uh, obviously, uh, that has influence here. Otherwise, I don't think we would be talking about it. That's a good question for you as well. Um, well but, yeah. but, but do these compare? No, they don't. I mean, I mean, I, I've been to the southern states, and I have to tell you, I mean, I was shocked to see these statues uh, still in public squares. I mean, these were people who led an insurrection against the American state in defense of slavery. That they were still standing when I visited them a few years ago was just plain shocking to me. There is no comparison with the, the, the case of, of John A. Macdonald in, 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 in modern-day Canada. There, there is no... I mean, the, the American Confederate generals were led a war against the American state. They were traitors to the American state. They should not be celebrated in public squares. John A. Macdonald, in comparison, was the prime architect and an and, and innovator of Confederation. I'm with those who think that John A. McDonald was the indispensable man in making our country what it is. So there is absolutely no comparison. And, and I think that those people who are tempted by this, this, this idea that we can revise history uh, by a slate of hand, by not knowing the facts, I mean, it's just plain wrong. So obviously you will not equate what is happening in the United States with what is, is trying to happen no. here. I think what's happening in the state is legitimate. What's happening with Johnny McDonald in Canada is not. 
Uh, some may say, and, and you know, you, you bring up a valid point. I mean, you know, the, it certainly was about war at one time. It was about uh, taking over America. Uh, that being said, some will say that, you know, specifically when it came to building the railway, excuse me, across the country, that, uh, you know, that he starved people, he did this, he did that. Uh, how do you explain that? Well, he didn't starve people. I mean, again, this is one of those things that has become, uh, you know, part of, 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 of conventional wisdom. There's no proof. There's no proof that he starved people. But people that people were hungry on the western prairies during the the, 19, the 1870s is so he did, we so do. he so he didn't starve them out to get the land to put the railway across oh no for heaven's sake no i mean in 19 in the 1870s the canadian government negotiated a bunch and this was not under mcdonald this was under mckenzie negotiated a bunch of treaties with aboriginal uh, tribes on the prairies there was all sorts of parts of that deal parts of the deal was that the canadian government would help them uh, with the cultivation of food. You have to remember, these were nomadic tribes. These were not people who, who had settled in the past. They were roaming across the prairies, roaming between the United States and Canada. The deal was, we'll set aside a territory. You will settle there. We will help you uh, with, with agriculture. We will help you with education. This is very important. Where things went wrong was that in the 1870s, the climate, the environment went really, really bad in Western Canada. This moved into the early 1880s. John A. Macdonald, gosh, I'm giving you a big history lesson. Bear with me here. Nothing wrong John with McDonald that. boosted, I mean, tripled the budget for Indian affairs. At some point in the early 1880s, it's something like the third or fourth largest expense in the government of Canada after railways and public works. I mean, John A. Macdonald responded. Could he feed every Aboriginal? Could the government of Canada feed every Aboriginal in the in the prairies? Absolutely not. I mean, it's not like we have refrigerated cars and Federal Express roaming across the western prairies. We don't even have a railroad at that point. So, I mean, the expectations, the judgment of people today uh, versus, you know, against people of the, of, of the 1870s and 1880s is just plain wrong. I mean, it's just, this is called presentism. And, you know, the, the idea that we can apply the standards of today to what it was like 150 years ago, I mean, it's just not serious. So, no, I stand against those people who argue that. I say, if you have evidence, show it. Until you have evidence, you can't uh, say these things. If, if John A. Macdonald's name is to be removed, shouldn't every other prime minister's name be removed uh, afterwards, well, considering exactly. they well, continued on uh, what, was, what was happening? Very much so. I mean, you take away John A. Macdonald, you're going to have to take away Wilfred Laurier. You're going to have to take away Robert Borden. You're going to have to take away Mackenzie King. You're going to have to take away R.B. Bennett, Louis Saint-Laurent. You're going to have to take away Pearson. And you're certainly going to have to take away Pierre Trudeau. Because Pierre Trudeau, in 1969, put forward a, pro a proposal to eliminate Aboriginal status for uh, Canadian Indians. So, I mean, let, you know, if you start going down that route and basically focus and judge prime ministers on one minute aspect of their governance, you're going to have a really serious problem. The issue here is how do we remember these prime ministers? What good did they bring to our country? And I'm not, again, and I emphasize this, I'm not dismissing the, the, what went wrong. I mean, what, what happened to the indigenous people of this country was a tragedy. 
but it was not entirely the fault of the government of Canada. So we have to remember the good that these prime ministers did accomplish. You said it wasn't all the fault of the government of Canada. Even today, do you think Canadians feel that it is? Do you think Canadians realize even back then that they were trying to help? Well, they were they were trying to help. You know, again, let, let's be let's be frank about this. Until about forty years ago, nobody in this country talked about Aboriginal issues. They were not they were not in the paper. We Canadians were not aware. Uh, I mean, those Canadians that were aware were the people who lived nearby, who may be familiar with with Aboriginal communities simply because they were part of the local uh, of, the, of, of the local area. Otherwise, they, these issues were not of national concern. They, nobody campaigned on this. Uh, you know, no no election uh, was decided on how Canadian how the Canadian government dealt with the Aboriginal people. This is all very recent. So, I mean, we, again, we have to put things in perspective. And for, for people to say, well, John A. MacDonald needs to be remembered for one thing and one thing only, and that is uh, a genocide against Aboriginal people, is, is simply just wrong. Is this an issue now because of what is happening in the U.S.? Why is this an, an issue now, do you think? Uh, I think it's in part, well, again, maybe maybe the U.S., but I think, I think it's really... Uh, what about truth and the, reconcil- uh, reconciliation? I mean, wouldn't exactly. this all be part of the same discussion? Yes, that's very much so. I think that's where I would... That... Patrice? Oh, we're losing. Are you there, Patrice? Here. No. Oh, can you hear can us? You hear oh, yep, go ahead. Yes, you're I fine. Can... Oh, we're, you're back. Go ahead. I can hear you. Okay, go ahead. You. No, I, I think there is a direct line to be drawn with truth and reconciliation. And again, and I emphasize, you know, truth and reconciliation is important, but we have to do it right. And I think that to deny uh, the, the, the memory of our prime ministers is simply wrong. We have to find other ways to achieve reconciliation. Uh, eliminating John A. Macdonald from our schools, from our streets, uh, is, is not the way to go forward. How do we do it right? Well, I think that... I mean, I, we, we have to, hey, first of all, we have to talk about it. And that's important. We have to talk about what happened. We have to document what happened. I think we have to, uh, we, we have, you know, and, and this is what the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission recommended. I think that, you know, there's a lot of focus on monuments right now. And one of the things that has not been talked about, and I think maybe it is time to talk about, is maybe a monument towards those victims. Uh, of, of, of Canadian policy. How come when we really don't have a place to remember the, the, the Aboriginal victims? And maybe we should have a monument in Ottawa to remember this, you know, an assembly point uh, to remember the victims, uh, to recognize the hardships that they went through. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of that thing, but I'm not a fan of, of tearing down monuments that have been erected by our ancestors because they had a particular memory of of a of a of, a, of, a, of an event or of a of a uh, personality in our past uh, that that was worthy of, of remembrance. I mean, let's let's remember Hamilton. I mean, Hamilton was the first city in Canada to honor John A. Macdonald with a statue in 1893. Mm. Ten thousand people showed up. Ten thousand people. Can you imagine today? Ten thousand people showing up. Mm. I mean, you know, you'd have to get a Maple Leaf victory in a Stanley Cup. Uh, that's never going to happen, is it? That's very true. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that, that may be a long wait. <clears throat> but, you know, 
so, I mean, let, let, let's remember why, you know, people in, in 1893 thought that John A. Macdonald was worthy of a monument. Uh, and let's not tear down that memory. Uh, let, let's, let's, you know, I, I say, let, let's recognize the wisdom of the crowd in those days, but recognize the, 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 the new awareness of, of Aboriginal victims and, and find a way for people to, uh, to remember. And that, that, that means more information, that means more documentation, and maybe it does mean a monument. Uh, certainly, uh, as you mentioned, in the, in the last couple of decades, we have all become more educated on all of this. Uh, with that has become, uh, 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 or with that has come a, a certain amount of guilt. I even noticed that with 150 celebrations, it sounded more, in some ways, like a memorial than it did uh, a, a celebration of 150 years. How do Canadians move past the guilt and 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 change or or, or balance everything, as you mentioned, with, with the past and the present? Um, it, it seems that there's this attitude among Canadians that John A. and everybody else that followed him uh, were doing this um, uh, were doing this to rid the country of our indigenous people, as opposed to try to help them. Is there any way to clarify that? Are, were we trying to were we trying to rid the nation of these people, or were we, were we trying to help, much like we've been doing since then? Again, I, I think it's undeniable. The, the, the people who are running Canada and, and the people who are voting for them, and that's why I'm talking about conservatives and liberals, were of the view that the only way you're going to help Indigenous people in this country is to push them along the, wor- the, the world of modernization, teach them, teach them the skills to thrive in a capitalist economy. Uh, and that means if you're living out in a remote area, you're going to have to go to school. That means you're going to have to learn English. That means you are going to have to leave your Aboriginal culture. That was the thinking. That was the thinking. I mean, we didn't have television. We didn't have the Internet. This was a matter of survival. We didn't have the welfare state. You know, so the thinking in those days was you've got to help these people, which means that in order to do that, we have to teach them. We have to educate them. And that was the whole that was the whole spirit behind the initiative. It wasn't. It wasn't to kill off or drive the Indian. Off. Was it to drive the Indian out of them? I mean, I yeah, hear that. I hear that quote. Of course, of course. But again, you know, it, it, it was, these, these are words that were said once or twice in the House. Johnny McDonald and his contemporaries and the people who followed him did not campaign on it. For them, it was natural. It was natural progression of things. Get these people into the mainstream. It wasn't meant out of. I mean, there was prejudice, of course, and I'm not denying that. But the idea here was still, I think, a good one. Namely, get these people into the modern mainstream. You hear this this language from Aboriginal leaders today. They want jobs. They want to be part of the modern economy. So the language in, in those days is not that different. But I want to come back to your question about what do we do. What we have to do is really have a great conversation an ongoing conversation. Look at what we've done in history, for history in our province and across Canada. We have eliminated history from our curriculum. Mm. We have, in Ontario, I have to say, Ontario is one of the leaders, and we do a miserable job. Uh, we have eliminated Canadian history from elementary school. We have practically eliminated it from secondary school. You will never talk about Johnny McDonald at school, never in this province. What we, how come we don't have 
you know, regular history documentaries on television. I mean, I look at PBS almost twi- twice to three times a week. There's a documentary on American history. You look at the BBC, and we as Canadians are massive importers of BBC documentaries. Again, either through PBS or TVO or the CBC. The BBC is constantly talking about the history of Britain through all sorts of interesting angles. The French public broadcaster does the same thing. The Germans do the same thing. What do we do? What does CBC do for history? I'll tell you what the answer is. Nothing. Nothing. I mean, we should be having an ongoing discussion about our history, about all aspects of our history. And I think that if we do that, we're going to have a much more sophisticated understanding of people like John A., of people like Wilfrid Laurier, of the leaders of the various provinces, but also of the leaders of our society. The views that were held by John A. MacDonald were held by the elite of that period. And we need to understand that. And I think that if we do understand the complexity of late 19th century uh, Victorian Canada, uh, we'll understand a lot more about uh, about the, the, the views on Aboriginal people. We'll also learn more about Aboriginal people. We should be having... You know, a regular show. Well, I've on, only got on about thirty average. seconds left on this, Patrice. Okay. But okay. But why should? Uh, why are we still talking about these issues? Why hasn't any of this worked? Well, why do we? Ha- why do we have the to... same problems today? Well, I say. I, I think we're having. You mean with regards to Aboriginal people? Yes. Well, I think we're, we're still not addressing it well enough. Obviously, I think we've made tremendous. Uh, we've made tremendous gains. We've, I think we've improved our programs enormously over the last 50 years, but there's a heck of a lot we need to do more. And so, I mean, that's why I welcome the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We have to learn from what they've taught, but at the same time, we Canadians have also got to learn more about their history, and only at that point can we truly evaluate uh, the, the, the motion that's been forward and accepted by the English Teachers Federation of Ontario and, but- and you know, dismiss it. Patrice Dutil has been with us, a professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson. Patrice, thank you for the discussion. Fascinating. We'll chat again, hopefully. My pleasure. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. There's been lots of chatter over the last several months about the increasing of minimum wage. Uh, many have said that uh, this is happening uh, too quickly, that uh, a 32% increase in less than 18 months is uh, going to put too much stress uh, on business, specifically small business, although from what we hear, uh, big business is, is uh, obviously affected by this. Lots of people in favor, uh, some that are not. Uh, this has been tweaked a little bit, but for the most part, uh, no real significant changes. Let's bring in Richard Brennan, retired journalist with the Toronto Star, covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for years and is with us now. Hello, Richard. How are you today? Scott, just by yourself. I'm great. Thank you for uh, taking the uh, time to do this. Uh, we have had the discussion about minimum wage, it seems, for decades. What's different about this discussion now? Well, I think it's a jump to 15 I'm, I'm not agreeing right now or disagreeing with it, but it, it is a bit of a jump in a very short time. And, but it should come as no surprise to anybody that the government was headed this way. And, and, and that's where I'm, I'm really taken aback by. I guess they're just taken aback by the timing rather than the figure. But 
the government has been, you know, showing its cards for quite some time that that's where they want to head to. Is the feeling on, uh, what about the public's perception and how they receive this? Is the feeling different now than it was a couple of decades ago on raising the minimum wage on, or, or is it just strictly the amount this time that, 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 is ca- that has caused all the uh, controversy? Well, it, the controversy seems to be among uh, business people, and rightly so. I mean, they're the ones that have to pay. But $15, uh, $15 an hour, to me, in this day and age, 2017, doesn't seem to me to be a huge wage. It, you know, it might mean that you know, somebody's holding down three jobs might be able to do two jobs now instead of three. Again, it's it's the it's the increase and it's the timing. It's people are saying, as mostly business people are saying, it's it's just too quick. It's not that we don't want to get there; it's just too quick. But what would be what would be the ideal uh, timing? And I really haven't I haven't heard that. Is it is it another three years? Is it another five years? Is it anything but now? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, do we need, uh, let me ask you this question, Richard, do we need to define the objective of minimum wage before arriving at a figure? Uh, do we need to figure out what minimum wage is? Uh, is it a starter job? Is it your first job? Is it an entrepreneurship? Or is it a liberal, is it something where you should be looking for a livable wage? Well, I would think I'd kick off every box there, quite frankly. Uh, unfortunately, there are people who are depending on this for a livable wage. Uh, you know, should a high school kid uh, working, you know, working part time at the grocery store as I did uh, in, in Brantford when I was a kid, I mean, should I be making fifteen dollars an hour uh, right off the bat? I would. I don't know. I, that, that's a good argument. I just don't think that maybe that's necessary. But there is no sliding scale here. It's fifteen bucks, and that's it. Well, that's it. And it, you know that that was the point that I've been making earlier on, Richard. I mean, I, same as you. I remember working at a Woolworth store, pushing a broom and cleaning out behind the lunch counter and emptying garbage cans, uh, making three eighty-five an hour. And I never thought to myself back then that you know uh, when I was sixteen or seventeen that this is how I was going to raise a family and and buy a house. That being said, as you mentioned, advocates for this would say uh, the objective of minimum wage has changed, that now people are trying to live off of this. But then I've had other experts that say that's not really accurate because there's not that many, there's not that large a percentage of the population that are working for minimum wage and most of them are younger. So is this a real, is this a real valid argument? That, it, that it's about becoming, you know, it's gone from a starter job that we all got as kids to something that you're supposed to make a living out of and, and supply rent. Well, it, it, I guess regardless of how you shake it out, it, it's become that. Uh, do I, you know, do we wish that it hadn't? But it, it seems to, you know, there's, let's face it, there's just not that many jobs around now. And if you, you know, not everybody's got, a, you know, uh, you know uh, two degrees, Mm-hmm. Uh, from university, so you know they're they're trying just to make ends meet. You know, I mean, they maybe didn't finish high school, and they're out there. They're willing to work, and they're just saying, "I want to I want to be paid something that I can at least squeak by on." And I think I think that's a valid argument. But again, I think, in my mind, anyways, that there should be some sliding scale. I don't think a kid in in high school right now who's got, like I said, that part-time job should be making 15 bucks right away. I just don't believe that. 
Then should we be raising minimum wage or trying to create jobs where people can move beyond minimum wage? Well, job creation. There's a, I don't know, it's a, a contradiction myself. I, I don't know. Government always talks about job creation. Well, it, it's private business that creates jobs. Mm. And they're complaining because they're the, you know, the ones that are saying, well, 15 bucks an hour is just too much. But as far as trying to, you know, trying to create jobs for, for these people so they can make more, I don't know how. I don't know how you're going to do it. Yeah. I mean, it sounds all well and good, but how do you do it? Yeah, good point. Well, obviously, like you said, you've got to you somehow create stimulation uh, in the private industry. That's who's creating jobs in the end uh, anyway, who are ultimately against this. So, again, how, how do you balance this? The reason I was asking you, are you keeping it in perspective? Um, because, again, I, I've had this discussion with, with advocates who, 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 who work with uh, those who are less fortunate, and, and this is affecting. And, and I've had this discussion, and, I, and I've said, you know, gee, I thought these were starter jobs. I didn't know these were jobs you should make a living at, to which they said, um, well, there's lots of people that now uh, depend on these jobs because of loss, loss of manufacturing jobs, et cetera, uh, and sometimes have to have two or three of these. Yet I've talked to professors who have said, you know, of everybody who works in Ontario, um, it's less than 9% who are actually working minimum wage, and of that less than 9% who are earning minimum wage, um, two-thirds of those are under the age of 25. In other words, people who are we're, we're talking about who, who have part-time jobs. So is it really accurate to say when it's less than 9% of the population in Ontario, and Ontario is one of the highest, it's a lot lower than that in the national average, is it is it accurate to say, you know, people are living off these when there's really not that many people living off them? Well, I'm, you know, that, that's okay for uh, some pointy-headed academic to you know, say well, this you know, this is no big deal because most people don't even you know are, are living off fifteen or, or minimum wage now going to fifteen dollars. But the fact remains, there are. But the well, the point <laughs> is, I guess that he was making was two thirds of these people, of which it's a small percentage, but of that percentage, two thirds of these are under the age of twenty five, which would obviously mean a third is over the age of twenty five. But again, I guess the point that I'm making is that doesn't this define minimum wage as jobs for people who are starting out? Well, I bet you those folks that are you know they're under what was it under twenty three or twenty five under twenty five. Yeah. Okay, well. You and I probably, and a lot of a lot of people of our ages, and I'm older than you, were you know had full time jobs. Yeah. By the time we were 25 years old. Yeah. And now they don't. And and that and therein lies the problem. I think is just that there just aren't the jobs out there that you know that to to help these people along. And 25, uh, you know, 25 to me is you know is not really a kid, quite frankly. And, you know, if somebody's living off twenty, you know, $15, or will be living off $15 an hour, I'm sure if you ask them, they would, they would like to give up that job and get one that paid a lot better, maybe it benefits, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. But they, they can't, not for now anyway. Uh, you talked about a sliding scale that, you know, $15... Uh, seems like an adequate minimum wage, but not necessarily for kids that are just starting out. Uh, do you think it should be something based on age? 
you know, quite frankly, I think you're, I think you're onto something there. I think it should be based on age. I, I worked at an IGA in West Brand or in Brantford, and uh, I, I moved from one job to another for because I was making ninety cents an hour. The first one that to a, the IGA in West Brand was giving me a dollar an hour. Yeah, and you know, it, and I didn't ex, I didn't expect much more because I was a kid. Yeah, and I wasn't I didn't have a family, didn't have kids to feed. So I, I didn't expect it anymore, and I don't think any kid that's at high school should expect, you know, fifteen dollars an hour. I just don't. I, I just don't think that's that's. It's a bit crazy in my mind, anyway. When would you maybe implement that? Age twenty. Well, as you're as you're older, for sure. As you're maybe out of the school system, maybe you're just graduating high school and you're not going on to university or college. Sure. Because you may need you may need fifteen dollars. Right. How but, much help do you think, or how much relief? The the premier said that she uh, w- was promising some sort of relief for small business to help them get through that. What do you think small business is going to see from the government on this? Well, again, robbing Peter to pay Paul. Uh, hmm. I, I I don't know. I I really haven't got a clue what how they're going to. You know, are they going to say well? We'll pick up part of the cost of that fifteen dollars. Well, from I what mean, that's they, the only from, way from, I can I can think of them. Or they're talking about giving, giving them you, a tax break. That's or what something. they're that's what they're talking about now is that possibly giving them some sort of tax break, which will uh, offset this. Well, I'm all in favor of some kind of tax break for small businesses. Absolutely. All right. What about the large businesses that are commenting on this? Metro has commented the grocery chain how much this is going to cost them. Uh, what about them? And in the end, are, are we really helping those trying to get a job, or are we pushing larger companies like a Metro into more automation? Boy, I, I practically cry myself to sleep every night thinking about Metro and Loblaws. You know, <laughs> you, you know, give me a break. These people, these companies. All these companies took advantage of guys like you and me and, and, and the girls our age back then who were working part-time. They made money because they were paying us next to nothing. And that's, they've been doing that. They've been taking advantage of kids. And not advantage, they were jobs. I was glad to do it. But I'm saying they had it good for a very long time where they've just been paying kids minimum wage or, or maybe just slightly less. You know what? I just, I don't, I, I'm, I can't. The Weston family, I think, is going to eat tonight. Let's put it that way. Uh, do you think this will, uh, in the end, do you think this will help, or do you think this is going to lead to more things like automation, or just, you know, instead of having three employees, you're just going to have two? Automation is going to happen regardless of $15. Yeah, good point. I mean, it happened in the auto industry. I mean, you know, when I was, when I was a kid uh, working at the, at the farm implement industry in Brantford, I mean, those jobs, if they were still around today, but they would have been, you know, probably 50% or more would have been replaced by, by uh, automation, just as they have in the auto industry. I mean, the, the jobs are few and far between now because they're just robots do what, uh, you know, someone else used to do. The NDP tried to pad this, uh, adding uh, sick days to it. Uh, if you're Kathleen Wynne, why not keep going? Or is just the 15 figure that's something that stands out in people's minds? Because a lot of people said it was less than, a lot of workers say it's less about the money and more about scheduling and, and lack of rights that way. 
Well, I, I feel like a bit of a mugwomp here because I, I do got to take the, the, the side of the, the business here. When I worked at the Toronto Star, I didn't tell the Toronto Star when I was going to work. Hmm. And a business has to get, it has to, I mean, it, it can't take advantage of a people, but it has to get people in there when they need the help. When they need someone to, to, to do whatever job it is, and they just can't rely on somebody who may want to show up when they want to. I, I just don't get it. I mean, the split shifts in that I know are a problem. But, you know, if, it's a, if you're a bus driver or, or, or something, yeah, a bus driver, for example, well, you kind of expect, you know, not kind of, you do expect split shifts. Yeah. That's the way the world is. So, you know, this thing about hours, I mean, how far can you go? God, you know what, all of a sudden, you know, the guy says, well, you know, I'm, I want to work from home. That's all there is to it because, uh, you know, the new labor laws suggest that they have that right now. Well, you've got to draw the line somewhere is what I'm saying. Richard Brennan has been with us, retired journalist with the Toronto Star covering Queen's Park and Parliament Hill. Richard, thanks for the time and expertise. Much appreciated. Yes, Scott. Thanks a lot. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.